0: I began the year with uh, pretty lofty goals. One of the things I was going to do was write a book called Follow Me, uh, the subject we're talking about in our other podcast called The Following, and even had the first chapter, kind of an introductory chapter that uh, spoke about my own personal experience of coming to begin to follow Jesus, and uh, that that chapter was completed, and and, uh, one evening our grandson Danny was over visiting us, and nearly two, two years old, and I got up to go somewhere and he was playing with toys in front of me, and I uh, my, locked, my feet locked up. Uh, as in Parkinson's, we call it freezing, and they froze. And um, I was afraid that I was going to fall on Danny, and I said, "Danny, move! Grandpa's going to fall." on And he, he thought it was a game, so I just um, reached down to move him out of the way. And in doing that, I overbalanced and fell and um, dislocated my left shoulder and uh, broke the humerus bone in uh, on, on the top of it and uh, dislodge some tendons and uh, that's what I've been doing for the last four months but so I thought it'd be good uh, for me to at least have an opportunity for this first chapter to be heard by some people and um, there's a lot of people that um, I have to thank for what's gone on in our lives as God has used them to help us through the uh, the ministry this is called um, decided hope this is an encouragement to you. I began following Jesus in 1971. It was during a summer break before my last year in high school. The youth director of a church that I had become loosely affiliated with asked me to join him and a few other young people on a trip to Colorado for a discipleship conference. This presented some problems because this group came from a Southern Baptist church and we were Roman Catholics. My mother was not at all sure that her youngest wasn't being drawn into some strange cult her fear wasn't because they were a different kind of church. What freaked her out was that her 17-year-old son, whom she had towed to church his entire life, was now wanting to go to study the Bible every week. That was not normal or typical, was it? When my grandparents found out, they were mortified. They told my aunts and uncles that I may have fallen into with the wrong crowd, and all these people wanted to do was study the Bible and have prayer and meetings and go and talk to strangers about changing religions. What caused them the greatest despair was that they were not Catholics, but Baptists. It was a different day. To them, it was like changing sides and might be a mortal sin. They were convinced that I had fallen under the Baptist mind control. What really happened was not nearly so spectacular. I had been working uh, at an all-you-can-eat Mexican buffet restaurant called Casa Bonita since I was 15. A group of kids from this Baptist church, most of whom I went to school with, would often come in for lunch after church. It cost $2.29 for all you can eat. Boy, they could eat. Just after noon, 25 or 30 of them descended on Casa Bonita and took over Section G in the back corner. They were loud and at times obnoxious. They loved to make fun of me for being their waiter and they laughed and got rowdy and even got asked to leave a time or two. But there was something intriguing about them. Every Sunday just before they ate, suddenly uh, they got very quiet. And one of the students would stand and give thanks for the food and the time together and for Jesus. What was so staggering was that it was the authenticity and sincerity that they displayed. This was not an assigned task by an adult leader. It was an ordinary high school student talking to God like they knew Him and expected Him to be listening. I I'd never seen or heard anything like that, myself longing to know more. Eventually one of them invited me to come around and see what I thought of the one that they were following. And so I did. I started going to a Bible study at the church on Wednesday evenings. The enthusiasm for Jesus they demonstrated at Casa Bonita was even more intense. I'd never been uh, to a Bible study before, so I had no nothing to compare it to. Now having pastored churches for about 30 years and leading and attending thousands of Bible studies, I've still never experienced anything quite like this bunch of kids. When I arrived for the first time, I was given a copy of The Way Bible, Living Bible and instructed to take place uh, uh, on the floor in front of the bar stool and the music stand. When we were all seated on the floor, there were about 80 to 100 teenagers. They all had copies of the Way. Soon Bobby Bender walked through the crowd and took his position in the bar stool and placed his copy of the Way on the music stand. Bobby Bender, the church's youth director, was in his early 20s. He was six foot one, very fit, with red hair and skin tone to go with it. He also wore hard contact lenses that irritated his eyes, so they looked like he might explode any moment. Bobby just walked to the front and said something like, Okay, tonight we're looking at the Lordship. Somebody read Romans 12 two out loud for us. All of a sudden it sounded like a tornado as this group of teenagers flew into their copy of the way. Within a second or two, a voice came out of the crowd. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but be a new and different person with a fresh newness in all you do and, and think. Then you will learn from your own experiences how his ways will really satisfy you. Bob would say, thanks. What was that verse saying to us? How can we apply it? Another outburst as the students vied to answer the question. For the next hour, the process repeated itself at speed and enthusiasm. After it finally stopped, I looked at my copy of The Way in my hands. I had never opened it. I remember thinking, if I choose to go this way, I don't know that I'll ever catch up let alone catch on. I was still uh, just an observer when Bobby asked me to go with him to Colorado. I found out later that the reason Bobby invited me, an onlooker, to a discipleship conference was that at 17, I had a full driver's license. It was not that I, he saw any potential in me, but in my license. It was a long way to Colorado Springs, and he couldn't drive it by himself. Bobby and, and the gang showed up at 4.30 a.m. on the soon-to-be-hot Saturday morning. He drove a 1967 Buick Skylark with a 340 cubic inch V8 under the hood and three-speed manual transmission. It was a three-on-the-floor stick shift. When I got to the car, Bobby tossed me the keys and said, Here, you drive first. I had never driven a stick, and pride prevented me from mentioning it. So I took the keys, started the car, and slowly released the clutch, and bunny-hopped all the way down Byron Avenue, beginning the trip to the place where I would hear Jesus say, follow me. As the sun came up that August morning, it became clear that I had wandered into the tall cotton. I was the youngest of our little traveling party. By this time in my life, I was an expert in social hierarchy, and this crew were a different atmosphere. These were university-age kids, the leadership of the church's youth group. Not only were they older, there were a couple of girls with us who were really cute, At that time, cute both thrilled and um, terrified me. Under normal circumstances, I would never have gotten within 50 feet of the occupants of their tier, let alone breathing the same air. Suddenly, an overweight, acne-spotted onlooker from the enemy camp, remember, these were different days, found himself in the cool kid's car. I almost didn't make the trip at all. When Bobby asked me if I had my driver's license and if I wanted to go, I was shocked, but found myself really wanting to go. There was just one problem, actually 60 problems. The cost to go to the conference was $60. I didn't have $60. I asked mom and she didn't have $60. I did not seem to know anybody that had $60 that they could give me so that I could go. I told Bobby the situation and I would not be going. He said, give me a couple of days and let me see what I can do. My mother was without ceremony left to raise her four children on her own. I was number four and the only boy. When Susan, the oldest, was six, and I was six months from being born, the sperm that fertilized my egg came home one night and told my mother that he didn't want to be married to her any longer and scampered off. Charming, isn't it? What did she do when she went to work to provide for her kids? Mom didn't have any extra $60 hanging around to pay for her son to attend a conference teaching a different religion. By the way, in today's dollars, it was equivalent to roughly 371 US dollars. It wasn't going to happen, end of the story. Maybe not. On Wednesday morning, Bobby called and said that Charlie Graves, the senior pastor of the church I had been hovering around, wanted to see me that evening. He would be playing Church League softball. At about 7.30, I could see him there. I didn't know Reverend Graves. I was not allowed to attend the church services, only the youth Bible studies. Reverend Graves had a reputation for being a good speaker. He was a, a little bit tongue-tied. He was given to outbursts of anger when he, was, when he competed in, well, when he competed. He would be competing that evening and meeting me. How special. When the game was finished, Reverend Graves walked off the field right up to me. Tim, nice to meet you. Listen, there's a businessman in our church named Jack Humphreys. And he would like to pay your conference fee for the next week. With that, he reached into his pocket and took out three $20 bills. Let me know how it goes. And he walked out the field. And that was just the beginning of a, a, a lifetime of Charlie's investment in my life. I went home and told Mom what had happened. She relented and granted me permission and even gave me $5 for spending money for the week. Our destination was Glen Erie, the national headquarters for the Navigators, a Christian discipleship ministry. Glen is the Navigators' national office and conference center. The roads between Oklahoma City and Colorado Springs were long and straight mostly flat, and in the very early hours of the morning, virtually empty. They were very forgiving and allowed uh, me the opportunity to get used to the stick shift. We arrived safely late that afternoon. When you get to the springs, the Rocky Mountains kind of erupt out of the plains of eastern Colorado. Growing up in Oklahoma City, you never confront mountains. In fact, the Cambridge English Dictionary defines topography as the physical appearance of natural f- features of of an area of land, especially the shape of its surface. Oklahoma City didn't have any, unless flat is a shape. I remember being a little frightened as we drove through Colorado Springs and into the foothills, hoping they wouldn't fall on us. We signed in, got our room, and unpacked. Conference was due to start the next morning. There were about 200 university students and me. Since I started attending Bible studies with Bobby, I felt overwhelmed with my sense of deficit. Our family had attended church every week. We participated in the liturgy, but I never sensed there was any expectation that I was supposed to remember anything. This group of kids seemed to know the whole New Testament. I was learning a few things, but mostly I was clueless. At dinner that first night, a guy giving the announcements encouraged us to get to know each other and to get to know as many people as we could. We should pair up with somebody and go over our verses. Go over our verses? What What on earth does that mean? I looked at Bobby and he recognized my expression of terror and said, these kids all do scripture memory. Don't worry. If they ask you to run verses, just tell them that you don't have any, but you'd be happy to review them on theirs. Right, that was going to happen. I told Bobby that I needed to make a phone call and I would see him back in the room. The $5 mother had given me lasted through the second time we stopped to get petrol. I was beginning to panic. I was two or three years younger than everybody in the conference. I was already clear that... This is one of those deals where they make you talk to each other and reveal what you know and understand. That presented a real problem. I knew very little and understood even less. I needed a strategy that would put me in, in, on the front foot. I decided on what they called uh, a hanging lantern. It means that you beat the people to the punch by telling them the things you hope they don't find out. I considered using this as an introduction. Hi, my name is Tim Lester. And I'll be 17 next month and a senior in high school. I don't know much about the Bible and don't have any memory verses or any money for that sake. Maybe I could do something about my financial situation. I asked my older sister Susan and her husband David if they would wire me some money. She asked me, how much I do you need? I hated that question and I still do. None of us can remember how much they sent. I remember one thing. The look of the guy's face tending the Western Union counter. Sunday night, Bob let me take the, ca- the, the car to the Western Union office and the bus station downtown uh, Colorado Springs. The bus from Oklahoma City was due to arrive at 11 p.m. and uh, the funds would arrive sometime after that. I had not noticed because Bob was driving that when we turned onto the road that leads to Glen Airy, there was quite a big dip and a tight right turn. On the way out, it became a sharp turn to the left and a steep climb to the stop sign at the road leading into the city. All that forgiveness I found driving the manual transmission on the flatlands of western Oklahoma evaporated as I faced my first hill start. Over and over again I tried and failed to get the car over the hill and on the flat crossroad. Every time I put the clutch in and put the car in gear, I would go backwards and I'd give it gas and quickly release the clutch that would cause the car to lurch forward and kill the engine. I considered seeing if I could just roll backwards to the entrance of the glen. Finally, the stars lined up and I miraculously made it. Knowing I could do the downhill bits left me confident enough to complete my task. I found the Western Union bus station and told the attendant my name and the number of the bus my sister had given me and my driver's license as identification. Timothy Garrett Lester from Susan E. McReynolds, in City. That's me. As I signed the paper, he slid across the counter. I looked up and there was this look. Is that all you were expecting? Yes, sir, why? It cost her nearly $5 to send that to you today. With that, he deliberately flicked the bill across the counter with his bony, nicotine-stained index finger. When it came to a stop, I could see that it was a $20 bill. I looked back at the man and his expression had not changed. I suddenly felt really stupid. For wasting so much time and energy to get $20 off my sister and brother in law's hard earned money. I just wanted them, to, them for spending at the snack bar and going out for a burger. The guy at the Western Union was right. I was a selfish idiot. He never said the words, but his facial expression were profoundly articulate. For some reason, I could not shake the bad feelings that generated by the previous night's trip to Western Union. I had a sense of foreboding. Any moment I fear, I'd run into Susan or David or Mother and I sat in my room all afternoon with an unopened Bible on my lap. What was I going to do? That evening, a guy named Bill Gibbs spoke on being plugged into reality. I can't recall the contents of the message, but neither can Bill. I called him and asked. Given the title, it must have been something about authenticity and faith. What it really means is to follow Jesus. Not fluff around, but to follow him. At the end of the message, Bill said, I want you to find a place and be alone with God. No noise for 30 minutes. I found a place by myself and sat down with an open Bible and tried to figure out how to fill 30 minutes of silence. This was part of the youth group activities that made me nervous. I really liked the big Bible study in church and I had even began to look forward to when we broke up into smaller groups and read a bunch of verses and try to figure out what it meant. It helped me know my way around the, the, the One Way Bible. I liked it when we sat around and sang choruses, like this is the day I got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Jesus is the answer, and I decided to follow Jesus. The last line of that that last song always bothered me. No turning back, no turning back. I didn't know much, but I understood that being a follower of Jesus involved a commitment to keep on following whatever the situation or location or political political climate. We had studied a verse at the youth group Bible study. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him them deny themselves, take up their cross and daily and follow me. I didn't understand it, but three words screamed at me. Daily, follow me. What I understood was that it did not describe me. I was comfortable with the lifestyle and perspective of two groups, those who followed Jesus and those who didn't. I was a chameleon. The only time I was truly uncomfortable was when the, the worlds collided. From time to time, some of those from both sides of the, would arrive at the same place in time, and I found that I was embarrassed to be identified with Jesus. That night, sitting alone in the silence, I was pretty unsettled. I was still Working on the embarrassment from the night before, an insignificant episode in the scheme of things, but it left me strangely open for what happened next. I opened the Bible to the first chapter of the book of James. I scanned down the page looking for the verses Mr. Gibbs had read in his talk. So don't fool yourselves, for if a person just listens and doesn't obey, he's like a man looking in in his face in the mirror. As soon as he walks away, he can't see himself anymore. Or Remember what he looks like. But if anyone keeps looking steadily into God's law for free men, he would not only remember, but will do what it says and God will greatly bless him in everything he does. As I read these verses, it felt like a giant weight was slowly being lowered onto my shoulders. I read it again and the pressure increased. I was afraid to read it a third time. I didn't need to. I got it. That was me in that verse. I was happy enough with the company of my believing friends and our studies and prayer group circles. The problem was, when I wasn't with them, I wasn't one of them. I was the man with the forgettable image in the mirror. What happened next would be hard to put into words and not reproducible. I thought and prayed for a lot longer than 30 minutes. I told God I was sorry for playing loose with his word and that it stopped here. I promised I would be there every day as much as I could articulate. The problem was that when I wasn't with them, I wasn't one of them. I was the man with the forgettable image in the mirror. What happened next would be hard to explain in in words and not reproducible. I thought and prayed for a lot longer than 30 minutes. I told God I was sorry for playing loose with his word and that it stopped here. I promised that I would be there every day. As much as could be articulated by a 17-year-old, I poured out my heart to God with the words the Apostle Paul says too deep for utterance. For months before, Every time the speaker gave us a chance to pray the sinner's prayer, I prayed it. I would tell God that if I didn't really mean it before, I really meant it this time. But to no avail. I came to see that it was really kind of Baptist liturgy. That night, as the sun set behind the Rockies, I decided to follow Jesus. I didn't come to get eternal life or my sins brought under the cross by praying the sinner's prayer. Although I believe all those are mine, In Christ Jesus. August 23rd, 1971, I decided to follow Jesus. From there, there would be no turning back. No turning back.